We're going to kick off Mark chapter 11 with verse 22, where we left off last week. But as is always the case, sometimes it's helpful to establish the scene of activity, to set things up with a little context. We are in the final week of Jesus' life. On Sunday, he's arrived into Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Passover, presenting himself as the King of the Jews, but also presenting himself as the Passover sacrifice. After an exchange with the religious leaders, after prophesying and weeping over Israel's coming destruction, after a stop in the temple, Jesus, on Sunday evening, returns to Bethany for the night. On Monday... Jesus makes his way into the temple to drive out the money changers. But before that, we noted that he did something a bit bizarre, if not downright unusual. We're told that he cursed a fruitless fig tree. And remember, what upset Jesus most was not the fact the tree was fruitless, but the fact that the tree appeared to possess something it didn't actually have. Jesus was irked by this fig tree because it had leaves, which indicated that there was fruit, but when he arrived, he saw that it was false advertisement. It was offering something it didn't have to give. Now, following this violent exchange that occurs in the temple, Jesus spends the rest of the afternoon there on Monday teaching the people, explaining to them his actions by teaching from Isaiah 56 before returning to Bethany. As Tuesday morning rolls around, Jesus, the 12, they're making their way back to Jerusalem. Peter observes this same fig tree that Jesus has just cursed the previous day, and he notes that it had dried up from the roots and withered away. Now, in order to understand the response that we'll be looking at this morning, you have to keep in mind that in cursing the fig tree, Jesus was condemning two flawed institutions. First, the fig tree representing the nation of Israel and the fig leaves representing man's best attempt for covering, that being religion. So verse 22 of Mark chapter 11, we read, So Jesus answered, the context established, and he said to the disciples, Have faith in God. Now, since neither Israel nor a works-based religious structure had ever produced real fruit, this four-word response that Jesus issues to Peter's inquiry, it carries with it powerful implications. Jewish heritage had yielded fruitlessness. Religion, man's best attempts, had yielded fruitlessness. And Jesus answered and said to have faith in God. He's commanding them, literally, you have faith in God. He curses this tree. The next day they're coming through. Peter says, wow, this tree, it's been cursed. It has withered. From the roots, it's withered. And Jesus turns, and in response to all the context, he looks at the disciples, and he says, you have faith in God. You know, the Bible makes it crystal clear that I am powerless to save myself or to produce godly fruit. That in and of myself, I can't do it. 
religion, religious structure, morality. Left to myself, apart from the power of God, I can do no good. Isaiah 64 verse 4 says that we are like an unclean thing. And all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Psalms 14 verses 1 through 3, we're told that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there's any who understand, who seek God. But we're told that they have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. And then obviously Romans 3 verses 23, we're told, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Left to yourself, you are not capable of godliness, only worldliness, which leads us to the radical implication that we see from Jesus's four words here in context to the failure, the fruitlessness of religion. The power to produce spiritual fruit, the, the power for salvation, and the power for godliness. It rests not in my strength. It rests not in my ability. It rests not in my adequacy, but in my faith and his sufficiency. This is a consistent concept through the writings of Paul, Ephesians chapter 2. He says, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And then he says, for by grace you have been saved. How? Through faith. Not of yourself. It is a gift of God. Not of works. Why? Lest anyone should boast. And then 2 Corinthians 3, he says, not that we are sufficient, of ourselves to think of anything as being of ourselves or from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us into sufficient ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Religion failed. As a matter of fact, all it did was condemn. And Jesus curses this. And then he turns and he says, the key to salvation and the key to godliness, the key to spiritual fruit. It's not of you, but it only comes when we have faith in God, which is why he exhorts us to this. Now, it is this reality that we're to have faith in God that provides us the context by which we can understand the rest of what he's going to be saying to the disciples. The next few verses, admittedly, are complicated. As a matter of fact, they have yielded quite a bit of heresy throughout church history. They're tough to understand and tough to grasp, not meaning it's impossible, but you must understand you got to keep the context of faith in God in your mind as you're reading the next few verses or you will become confused. Verse 23, for assuredly, Jesus continuing, I say to you that whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Now, <laughs> Before we explain what Jesus is saying here, 
we should point out that this verse is used as the basis for the Word of Faith movement. This movement was started in the early 1900s by a man named E.W. Kenyon. It was popularized in the 60s by a gentleman named Kenneth E. Hagen. Other people that are associated with the Word of Faith movement are as follows. Kenneth Copeland, Charles Capps, Benny Hinn, A.A. Allen, Creflo Dollar, Oral Roberts, Robert Tilton, Joyce Meyer, T.D. Jakes, Frederick Casey Price, David Chow, which is the pastor of the world's largest church in South Korea, Paul and Jan Crouch, and John and Joel Osteen. Now, word of faith theology, in case you're not familiar with it, I'm sure some of those names struck a chord. Most of them are on television. Most of them get associated by the world as being Christian. And they horribly misrepresent Christianity, which is why it's important for us to address this heresy. Word of faith theology, it teaches that one believes, that if one believes the word of God and confesses its promises verbally, then the believer shall receive whatever it is that they've confessed. Hank Hanegraaff has commented that in many ways, the word of faith movement was spawned by an unholy marriage of the 19th century New Thought metaphysics movement and the flamboyance of post-World War II revivalism. E.W. Kenyon, he said this, what I confess, I possess. You might have heard this phrase, name it and claim it. Hagen takes it all a step further. He said that every man who has been born again is an incarnation, and Christianity is a miracle. The believer is just as much an incarnation as was Jesus of Nazareth. We're able to claim things and declare things in the power of God because we are God. Copeland said that Jesus is actually the end product of generations of positive confession. John Osteen, he said, I look at the great truths of Almighty God with the sixth sense and my spirit man. I'm not sure what that is, but that's what he says. And I believe that I have a consciousness that they are mine. I see and I believe salvation is mine. Healing is mine. Prosperity is mine. All of God's blessings are mine. And on the basis of this information from the sixth sense of faith, I can say confidently, I am healed. I am blessed. I am redeemed. I am prosperous. There are two factions within this umbrella we would call word of faith. There are those concerning like the healing miracles, Benny Hinn and stuff. You'll see them on TV. You know, people being healed of incredible uh, calamities and infirmities and whatnot. But in regards to healing, the Word of Faith movement teaches that complete healing, spirit, soul, and body, is included in Christ's atonement and is therefore available now to all who believe. Let me explain what this means. Healing according to the word of faith, it's not the act of denying pain or sickness or disease, but of actually denying its right to supersede the gift that's been given to me by God and Jesus' crucifixion through atonement. 
You see, what they do is they take Isaiah 53, verse 5, which says, by his stripes we are healed, and they view this literally in regards to a physical healing. Sickness, according to Word of Faith teachers, is an attempt by Satan to rob believers of their divine right to total health. Word of Faith teaches that believers should accept the reality of a healing that has already been provided by Jesus. Prosperity. Prosperity doctrine, prosperity gospel, also fits itself under the Word of Faith umbrella. And it teaches that God empowers his people to achieve, to lay hold of, to claim the promises, including monetary blessing, that are contained in the Bible, namely for Israel. Because of this, Word of Faith teachers say that suffering and poverty don't actually come from God, but rather Satan. I'll give you a few quotes to validate this. Copeland said, the idea that God uses suffering for our benefit is considered to be a deception of Satan and absolutely against the word of God. If someone is not experiencing prosperity, says Copeland, it is because they have given Satan authority over their lives. Charlie Capp said, God created the universe simply by speaking it into existence. And humans because we're part of the incarnation, we've been endowed by the same power to speak things into existence. Thus making a positive confession and believing that what God says actually generates power to enable those things to come into fruition. God spoke and things existed. We can speak and things will come into existence. So it's by the power of positive confession. Joel Olstein, he says this, Catch the first few words. You can cancel out God's plan by speaking negative words. God works by laws. You've got to speak it out. Your words have creative power. One of the primary ways that we release our faith is, faith is through our words. Interesting, not through our actions, but through our words. There is a divine connection between you declaring God's favor and seeing God's favor manifested in your life. Some of you are doing your best to please the Lord. You are living a holy, consecrated life, but you're not really experiencing God's supernatural favor. And then Olstein says, because you're not declaring it. You've got to give life to your faith by speaking it out. Ironically. In 1998, at the age of 77, John Osteen, the founder of Lakewood Church, he started suffering from liver failure. On January 19, 1999, Lakewood Church, its pastoral staff, encouraged its members to begin praying for their pastor using the power of positive confession. This is, and I quote, what they were to pray. Name it, claim it. God has promised John that he will be preaching into his early 90s. Don't forget, he's 77. And God gave him a vision for seven years of harvest, and we are just beginning our sixth year of this special thrust for world evangelism. God has promised our staff that he will bring our pastor kidneys on a platter of praise. And God, who began the universe as mighty creator, is creating what our pastor needs in his body. Two weeks later, on January 25th, 1999, 
John Osteen died of a massive heart attack. Name it, claim it. Now here's the problem with this perspective. And it's popular, it's pervasive. You go into your Christian bookstore, most of the men that I just referenced, you will find their literature and material all over the bookstore. The problem with this perspective, because they'll take these verses, is that Jesus exhorted us right from the start to what? He sets the context, doesn't he? Have faith in God. Faith in God. Not faith in myself, or faith in faith, or faith in positive confession, or faith in my words. You see, real faith in God will seek God's will for my life, not my will for my life accomplished in heaven. In Luke chapter 22, verse 42, Jesus prays something interesting, something that actually runs against the entire Word of Faith movement. Jesus prayed, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. What, what cup is he referring to? The cup of suffering that is on his immediate horizon. Nevertheless, what does Jesus say? Not my will, but what? But your will be done. And we know that Jesus was arrested that night, brutally scourged, made fun of, mocked, and ultimately executed, right? Crucified. So Jesus, he says, not my will, but your will be done. And God's will was done in the life of Jesus, which means that health and prosperity wasn't God's will for Jesus. You see what I'm saying? You see the flaw here? You see, faith in God enables me to place my present situations and my present circumstances into the hands of a loving Heavenly Father. And then what? Faith in God enables me to trust that whatever it is I'm presently facing, whatever situation, whatever hardship, whatever thing, whatever I'm facing has been allowed to come into my life by God for a myriad of different reasons, sometimes correction, but other times for my betterment, growth, Christ-likeness, and in some instances, simply God's glory through my endurance concerning his thorn in the flesh. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says this. He says that he pleaded with the Lord three times. He named it and claimed it, right? Three times that this thorn in the flesh might depart from him. But Jesus told him, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength will be made perfect in your weakness. For Paul, health wasn't God's will, but a thorn in the flesh. For what purpose? Well, Paul will also say to keep him humble for all the things that he saw, but ultimately that the world could see that the strength that Paul had to endure this thing in his life, it was supernatural. It brought God glory. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, with this context established, let's break down this verse systematically. Jesus says, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea. Obviously, it's important for us to define what mountain it is that Jesus is referring to or alluding to because it's the subject, isn't it? Mountain is the subject. And in Jewish culture, this phrase that Jesus used, 
uses was an idiom. A mountain was an idiom to describe something that was viewed as being immovable. Theologian William Barclay, he says the phrase about removing mountains was a common Jewish phrase. It was a regular, vivid phrase for something concerning removing difficulties. David Guzik says that Jesus is saying that we believe God can overcome any mountain or any obstacle. Jesus is saying, I believe, that if faith in God brings power for salvation, which is the context, right? Where religion failed, where Jewish heritage uh, failed, where all of man's best attempts produced fruitlessness, have faith in God, that it's faith in God that will produce fruit. So if faith in God produces or brings with it power for salvation, it will also bring with it the same power to overcome any human obstacle or endure any present difficulty or mountain. You see, faith in God is equally able to overcome these things. And then Jesus says that we do not doubt in our heart but believe that those things which he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Doubt. And does not doubt in his heart. The context is faith, isn't it? Faith in what? Faith in God. And then the exhortation is not to doubt. Doubt what? Our words or God, which establishes the context. This word doubt In the Greek, it actually literally means to withdraw from one or to desert. It's it's an exhortation against being removed from my faith in God, but instead remaining in my faith in God. You see, what are we being warned not to doubt or be withdraw from? Well, in the face of mountains, in the face of obstacles, in the face of difficulties, things that we view as being immovable, Jesus is exhorting us in the face of these things not to desert or depart from our faith in God's power to overcome. But instead, what does Jesus say? But to believe, or literally to entrust that God has your best intention in mind. You know, the power of God is not only able to save but it's able to make us victorious in living the life that Jesus has called us to. Romans 8, verse 37, Paul says, Yet in all things we are, and I love this, more than conquerors. And me, and my strength, and my words, and my confession, no, through who? Him who loves us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate me, us, from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's a promise. So my exhortation is what mountains exist in your life? What obstacles are you facing the glorious reality, faith in God, that God is able. Now, Jesus continues here this train of thought. Verse 24, therefore, and anytime you see a therefore, you should ask, why is it therefore? It's a clear indicator that Jesus is building upon what? 
the previous train of thought or the previous idea. Therefore, in context to faith in God, in context to God giving you the strength to endure, to overcome these mountains. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Now you can understand and see why this verse could easily be taken out of context. And if in reading this verse you conclude that Jesus is offering a blank check for the believer through the mechanism of prayer, you're absolutely 100% correct in your assessment because Jesus is offering a blank check through prayer. But don't forget the context for this prayer. Well, Jesus has established it. It's a prayer that is not based in my wants or my desires or even what I think I might need or what God should be giving me. But it's a prayer that is based in what? All the way back to the beginning, faith in God. Understand, praying with faith in God means that I am more concerned with what God desires for my life versus the things that I might fancy. It means I am more interested in my life bringing him eternal glory than I am about enjoying present comfort. You see, if I look at what I might conclude to be a mountain, an obstacle, a thorn in the flesh, let's use Paul as the example, and I see these things, or Jesus, the crucifixion, do I want to endure them? Do I want to face them? Do I want to have to go through them? No, not at all. We, as people, we enjoy comfort, more than suffering, truth. But if I then in a prayer of faith conclude that through these things God will be glorified, I'm more interested in God's glory than my present comfort. And so God, if I have to endure these things for you to receive glory, if I have to endure these things for your strength to be made perfect through my weakness, if these things you have brought into my life, then they're no longer mountains. It's exactly what you have brought, and my prayer enables me to keep this perspective. You know, think of it in light of the example of prayer that Jesus gives us. In Matthew 6, he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then what he says, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. A prayer of faith is more interested in God's will being done, not mine. And then Jesus says, no, he says, believe that you received them. I love that. It's the active tense. Literally, believe that you are presently receiving them. Not that you will receive them, but you are receiving them. You see, when I pray and faith in God, I can rest assured, hold fast, believe that in spite of these mountains, what I am presently receiving is exactly what God desires for me and for my life. You see, praying in faith, it enables my heart. It helps my heart to hone in on God and his will and not my wants. And praying in faith enables me in the midst of the storm around me to focus back in onto the beacon of God and the bigger picture that exists. 
Praying in faith enables me to remain steadfast, knowing that whatever I face, God is in control. And in his power, I can overcome. James 5, my brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of what? Of prosperity and health? No, of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endured. And you have heard of the perseverance of Job. And you've seen the end intention by the Lord that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Romans 8, 28, for we know that all things work together for the good to those who are called, to those who love God and those who are called according to his purposes. Now at this point, we've seen Jesus communicating three important realities, progressively. We're addressing this systematically. First, where religion fails, where the fig tree proves fruitless, faith in God proves able. Secondly, it is the same faith in God that provides adequate power to overcome whatever mountains I might be facing. Thirdly, prayer enables my heart to remain steadfast knowing that God is in total control no matter what life throws my way. And it's all said and done. He knows what I need more than I know what I need. He's the creator and I am the created. And then Jesus, with that in mind, transitions to explaining that faith in God and the prayer of faith in God, it faces a dangerous foe. He says, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you don't forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Now, right from the beginning, I want to make it clear that what Jesus is saying here should not be sugarcoated. The great theologian, Pastor Sandy Adams, and I hope he listens to this, that would be funny, he once said concerning pastors that we often make a huge mistake when we're, when we're quick to pull teeth from a passage that God intended to bite. Now the essence of what Jesus is saying is pretty radical, right? I mean, it doesn't take rocket science to reach the ultimate conclusion that Jesus is saying that the act of forgiving, forgiving you, is directly tied somehow to the act of you forgiving others. And this is shocking, isn't it? And right from the beginning, I can hear some of you thinking, but wait a second, I'm saved by faith, not works. It's not of me, it's a gift of God. You're right. But Jesus is also saying that somehow God forgiving you is tied to you forgiving others. But wait a second, Zach, religion has failed, and it's only the work of atonement on the cross of, of Calvary that brings me salvation, that brings me, imparts to me forgiveness. Absolutely. But Jesus is also saying that somehow God forgiving you is tied to you forgiving others. And, and before you say, well, that's just one verse, maybe it's taken out of context. Really? Do you realize that this whole idea is a predominant concept in Jesus' teaching. Think back to the prayer that we referenced, the Lord's Prayer, 
Forgive me my debts as what? As I forgive my debtors. In Matthew chapter six, verses 14 through 15, during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive you your trespasses. Another occasion, Luke chapter six, verse 37 Jesus says, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and what? You will be forgiven. Okay, so that's three, maybe four times. Fifth time, Matthew 18, verses 34 through 35. In the parable to the unforgiving servant, Jesus says, and his master was angry. At what? At his inability to forgive, and delivered him, what? To torturers that he should pay all that was due him. Okay, Zach, maybe you're taking out of context a parable, right? No, Jesus defines it. He says, so my heavenly father also will do to you, to each of you from his heart, if he does not forgive his brother his trespasses. So we find that this is not a one-shot idea or a two-timer, that this is a big concept. But I'm saved by faith, not works. Truth. But how you forgive is somehow connected to how God forgives. Your reaction to this, because let's be honest, what Jesus is saying is quite provocative. And I think to the hearers, what Jesus is saying, it should cause like the little hair follicles on the back of your neck to stand up a little bit. Like I think that that's Jesus' intention that the point of saying this the way he's saying this is to get you to be like, oh, snap. Like, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure I really get all this and like how that fits in, but, you know, if I'm harboring bitterness towards someone or if, if I find myself right now unwilling to forgive someone who has harmed me or done something wrong against me, if I'm unwilling to forgive in light of what Jesus is saying, I should, my reaction should be, oh no, I need to go seek forgiveness or I need to forgive. Jesus is being provocative. And I think he's doing that to make that point. If you're harboring bitterness, you need to let it go. And the way you let it go is by forgiving. But you should also note that what Jesus is saying here, it does, I believe, logically fit into the flow of the text. You know, there's an inescapable reality concerning your spiritual life, concerning your relationship with God and your interactions with everyone else. The Christian experience is in many ways reactionary. This is a big idea that we find in scripture that spiritually things tend to be a top-down exchange, that everything flows downhill when it comes to faith, when it comes to our spiritual, our Christian existence. Let me give you a few examples. God, God gave his life for you. And then because of that, in reaction, in turn, what do you do? Well, if you truly grasp that, you give your life 
back to him. He gives his life for you. The reaction, you give your life to him. God came into the world to reach you. And then in turn, the reaction should be what? That you now go into the world to reach others. God blesses you abundantly. And then what? In turn, he asks you to be an abundant blessing to others. You see how God does something to us and then that produces a reaction in how we interact with everyone else? God loves you. In turn, you've been called to love one another, even your enemies. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. That so much of the Christian experience is a reaction to what God has already done for us. See the flow here? So in context, Jesus is appealing to this natural reaction of experiencing the forgiveness of God should produce a reaction that we forgive others. You see, it's evidence of faith. It's evidence of how the Christian experience works. See, if you really want to observe someone's relationship with God, see how they interact with others. You see, if they're unloving or unmerciful to those around them, then it's often evidence that they really haven't experienced the love of God or they really haven't come to the terms of God's mercy. If they're ungracious, often it's because they don't get grace. You see, you can observe people that really get it, that really have connected with God. Why? Because it all flows downhill. And when you interact with that person, what are you getting a taste of? Of God. And the same applies to forgiveness. If you're unwilling to forgive, and I know right now you've got someone in mind, right? If you're unwilling to forgive that person, and it's that person, then there are three consequences that you should be wise to consider. If you're unwilling to forgive, I hope you understand that you are being unchristlike. You are not being Christlike. You're not being like Jesus. And we're called to be like whom? To be like Jesus. And why? Because Jesus forgave. As he's on the cross, Luke chapter 20, as they're mocking him and rolling dice for his clothes, Jesus said, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 1 John chapter 1, we're told that if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to do what? To forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus forgave. And if you're to be like Jesus, what should you do? Forgive. Well, you don't know what that person did to, you, did to me, Zach. You don't know what kind of hurt, what kind of problems, what kind of anguish that person's actions caused in my life. True, but they didn't crucify you. And if Jesus could forgive someone that scourged him and nailed him to a tree, then no matter what your experience might have been, it kind of pales in comparison. That's not to minimize your own hurt, your own pain. It's to just place it in context. Alexander Pope, in an essay on criticism, he said, 
And to err is human. To forgive, divine. Because our natural reaction is not to forgive. In our sinful state, our reaction is to seek vengeance. Or at least seek restitution. To get things back onto an even playing field. To make sure that whatever pain someone caused you, that they endure up or above the same degree. You see, forgiveness, it's not natural. It's supernatural. And therefore, it is evidence of the supernatural working of God in your life that you can go to someone in context to all the crap that they've brought into your life, and you can say, you know what? I forgive you. I forgive you. C.S. Lewis, in The Weight of Glory, he said to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. It's a truth that forgiveness is the evidence of the power of God in your life. Mother Teresa said people are often unreasonable and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people will accuse you of ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are honest, people may cheat you. Be honest anyway. For you see, in the end, it is between you and God. It is never between you and them anyway. Samuel Langehorn Clemens, better known as Mark Twain, he said, forgiveness is the fragrance that the violet sheds on the heel that has crushed it. That forgiveness is the fragrance that we should admit when we've been hurt. Forgiveness. So if you're unwilling to forgive, well, you're not being Christ-like because Christ is willing to forgive anyone. Secondly, if you're unwilling to forgive it's just evident, it's true, that you're limiting the work that Jesus can do in your life. The Oxford English Dictionary defines forgiveness as this. It's to grant free pardon and give up all claim on account of an offense or debt. And I really like that definition of forgiveness. <laughs> By the way, it doesn't make it an easier pill to swallow. If repentance is the mechanism by which the offender finds healing, that if we've caused harm to someone else, that we should repent of that, then forgiveness is the mechanism by which the offended, the person who's been hurt, finds healing. Forgiveness is important because it lessens the grip of bitterness and can take away the power that the offending party continues to wield in your life. Bitter person is a person who is still being harmed by the very person they hate. You know, the Mayo Clinic, this is not just a biblical idea. The Mayo Clinic describes the effects of holding a grudge as this. If you're unforgiving, you might pay the price repeatedly by bringing anger and bitterness into every relationship and every new experience. Your life might become so wrapped up in the wrong that you can't enjoy the present. You might become depressed or anxious. You might feel that your life lacks meaning or purpose, that you're at odds, even with your own spiritual beliefs. You might lose valuable and enriching connectedness with those around you. That's the Mayo Clinic. And Jesus says the same thing. You should forgive. Why? Because if you don't, it's to your own detriment, and it limits the work that Jesus can do in your life, mainly 
healing. Abraham Lincoln said, mercy bears richer fruits than stricter justice. Now note, and I want to make this clear, forgiving the offending party, forgiving, the act of forgiving, which we've been called to do, forgiving the victim, forgiving that individual, forgiving the, in, the offending party does not automatically guarantee reconciliation with the offending party. And sometimes we get that confused. Sometimes we think that the nature of forgiving means that my relationship with the person who's caused me harm now is immediately reset, that everything goes back to the way it was. And I think that reconciliation is a desired end game to forgiveness. I think we should forgive hoping that reconciliation can happen. But you should note that reconciliation is only possible when forgiveness is married with repentance. You see, just because you forgive someone that's harmed you doesn't mean reconciliation can happen if the person who's harmed you is not willing to repent. Without repentance, being married to forgiveness, reconciliation is impossible. It should be the desired goal, but it can never reach that destination if it's not partnered with the other party. C.S. Lewis, once again, in The Problem of Pain, he says that love may forgive all infirmities and love still in spite of them, but love cannot cease to will their removal. You are called to play your part, and that's to forgive. And if you have caused someone harm, may I tell you this morning, you should repent. Not just to God, who you ultimately sin against, but you should go to that person, knowing that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. Confession to God and also real confession, real repentance, it takes place to the person you've offended. And so this morning, if you've been hurt, you should forgive. But if you've done the hurting, you should repent. Because both are needed for reconciliation. And that is God's ultimate goal. That is his ultimate aim. God has forgiven us our sin and our trespass. But what must take place for reconciliation to occur between you and God? You must repent. But there's a third, third reason, third byproduct to, to us being unwilling to forgive. And this is where we kind of come back to the entire thrust of what Jesus is saying. Yes, if you're unwilling to forgive, that means you're not being Christ-like. And yes, you're limiting the work that God can do in your life. But we would be amiss to not say that if you're unwilling to forgive, it just so might be that you do not have a real faith in God. And that is a tough thing to hear. But I believe it's exactly what Jesus wants ringing in our ears because it ups the ante, it raises the stakes, forgiveness, even your enemies, for the Christian is not optional. It comes with turf. It is a byproduct of really experiencing God's forgiveness. God harbored no bitterness towards you. 
He held no resentment, and nor should you to others. And so, Father, Lord, with that thought, we leave it there. May we really hear what you wanted to say. In Jesus' name.